Welcome to the Around the Cauldron podcast, your mystical water cooler where we avoid work and chat about all things magic and metaphysics. You know, the shit you can't talk about with your other friends. I'm your host, Eliza. And I'm your host, Grace. We're bi-coastal BFFs and practitioners broadcasting from Boston and LA, ready to get witchy and woo with all of you. Hello, mystically minded witchy and woo. Welcome back to the Cauldron Cooler. Today we are actually doing something interesting. Uh, I don't know if all of you listening right now have noticed, but there have been some posts requesting that you all write in, chime in, post, whatever, some topics that you would like us to talk about. So today we are actually taking a listener up on that and talking about persecution specifically persecution of the witchy community. So before we go into that, because we had forgotten on our dousing episode, let's be sure that we have our card pull. Grace, for the love of God, save me from myself (laughs) and do the card pull. So I thought that since we were talking about persecution, um, it would be really happy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really happy topic um, that I would use the work your light deck. So how can you? Oh, that's a good idea. Work your light. Oh, and the card just jumped out. So that's interesting. Um, How can you work your light in the midst of persecution or being persecuted? And not ironically, because we know that stuff comes out as it's meant to. The card that came out is the Ever Unfolding Rose. And it says, the text on the card says, Cracked Open. It's happening for you, not to you. And I'll show you the card. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's so pretty. God, this deck is so pretty. And um, there's a woman here on the card. There's a rose in front of her. And it looks like she's sort of just opening up to life, whatever happens for her. And I'm thinking about, you know, just in the context of the episode, I don't think I necessarily agree that persecution happens, you know, for your good. (laughs) Wait, you mean you don't endure being persecuted? You don't feel like it makes your life better? I don't understand. But I do think that, that when it is part of our lives, we can learn about ourselves in the context of it right? We can learn more about our own strength and resilience and our values and how we respond or reflect on um, that energy coming to us. How are we going to react to it and not integrate um, that value system, but discern our own and, you know, in response to the persecution that's coming at us. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, and I think too, that, you know, persecution in our generation and right now looks a lot different than the persecution that we think about when we think of like the Salem witch trials, right? And the things that happened several hundred years ago. Persecution takes many different forms these days and it kind of depends on where you're living as well. Uh, I feel like in the United States, we're fortunate enough that we don't have to worry about like straight up persecution. I mean, there's bias and there's, you know, there will always be people that don't understand and that may choose not to affiliate with you and may even slander you and like, you know, nasty things like that. And granted, don't get me wrong, I'm sure there are parts of this country where if you're at the 
wrong place at the wrong time. If they find out you're a witch, things could go very wrong for you, but it's not quite to the level it was back in the 17th century. Mm -hmm. Um, But persecution takes lots of forms, you know, and clearly witchcraft is not the biggest, most prevalent form of persecution that folks encounter these days, but it is the unfair bias and judgment based on inaccurate or incomplete knowledge causing people to treat you differently mm-hmm. is very alive and well. Yeah. And, you know, let's be honest, like people have emotional fear, right. That they're putting out into the world. And, and that's, I think part of where persecution comes from and per- perpetrating it onto other people. We're recording this during pride month actually. So I know my fellow LGBTQIA plus folks know that there's some hot persecution still going on, but you know, hopefully we're making progress. The thing that's also coming to mind for me is that phrase like forgiveness is not something you do for other people. It's something that you do for yourself. And yeah, you do it for your own peace of mind, right? Like you, you don't have to buy into that other perspective, that negative vibe that's coming at you. But, um, you can just let it fall away. And that's interesting that when I open up the book to read about this card, it says the challenge of life is to keep your heart open when you most want to close it. And I think that's really true. It's fucking hard to do that, but yeah. it is beneficial. It's tough, man. I mean, it's always tough. Oh, God, and I hate kitschy phrases, but I mean, it's really appropriate. It's hard to live your truth when it's not necessarily the most accepted socially per, like prevalent lifestyle, you know, whether that's being born a different color, whether it's choosing to worship in a way that you feel called to worship, whether it's your gender sexual identity, you know, it, it it's difficult to live in an authentic way when you feel like you can't do it freely and there are people that will constantly judge you for it. Totally. So a few more phrases that stood out to me in the description of this card were um, being human is a courageous act. Wherever you find yourself at the moment, life is coaxing you to keep your heart open, no matter how much it hurts, to continually let it unfold. Let's see. One day, not too far from today, you'll look back at the transformation and be blown away by the poetry of life. Everything is going to be okay. That's a beautiful card. Yeah. And I think a really nice note to include with our really nice (laughs) note to include with our super super positive (laughs) persecution episode but we want to give we want to give the audience what they want and this is a very interesting topic so I do want to turn it over to Eliza for all the super cool research that she's done for us on this well I do think it's really appropriate also doing it like you mentioned we are recording in pride month and I think that the message here ultimately for everyone is kind of keep on keeping on you know just keep living your truth in a way that you are safe (laughs) let's be clear let's be absolutely clear um we always advocate staying alive versus putting yourself in a position where you can be harmed but to the extent that you safely can living authentically and I think Grace and I have both come to realize this in the past couple years on lots of different levels, you know, not even just spiritually, grants you a peace and an ability to be the best version of yourself in ways that aren't even necessarily related to your authenticity. 
just in how you operate in your daily life. Yeah, so with that, we're just going to get into the, uh, the actual nitty-gritty history of it, which is pretty much what this is going to, this episode is going to be on. We're not going to necessarily wax poetic on, um, not going to wax poetic on how hard it is <laughs> to be someone that does not necessarily fit the societal mold 100% because, look, we all feel it. We know what it's like. Let's do some learning and that way we all grow, right? Yeah, and you guys know that you are not alone. And if you are feeling alone, um, you can definitely feel free to reach out to your community in the Cauldron Cooler on Facebook um, and shoot us an email too. And we'd be happy to to connect with you if you're feeling kind of like a lone ship out at sea in your <laughs> community. Um, and then of course, uh, this all this stuff that we're gonna talk about here is great for us to come together around as part of our collective history. Yep. The historian in me finds this to be incredibly important. But first and foremost, since this is indeed a metaphysical witchcraft podcast, I would like to ask you, Grace, in your experience, what is it like in New England living as a witch? So, I mean, of course we have like Salem basically right up the street. (laughs) Which is where Grace got married, by the way, everybody. It was awesome. I did. Yep. Um, we had a photo of us taken, um, in front of the, the witch museum. I think there were also tourists taking photos of us too. Uh-huh. It was awkward. pretty great. <laughs> it was pretty great. It was also freezing and you guys were nuts, but. Yep. Um, but it's, I mean, maybe it's easier than in other places. I think it's still fairly difficult, um, maybe to talk about it as openly as you might as other, uh, affiliations, like a workplace, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some really old, um, you know, archaic puritanical rules around um, spiritual businesses here. Like you have to have a fortune teller's license in some cases. That makes me so happy. Like not generally speaking that that's a thing, but like those kinds of like historical holdovers that just like haven't been addressed. Because like, let's be clear, like nobody gives a shit. Mm-hmm. But the fact that like Clearly, the government hasn't had the time to be like, we should really review the fortune teller's license law. (laughs) Well, I'm sure that there are a fair number of people who are like, let's just keep that right over there because we need some extra income for the road, you know, uh, repairs. (laughs) You're like, this nor'easter is going to be bad. We need some extra snowblows. The fortune teller's license account. That's where we'll pull from. Um, but yeah, I think that there are a number of uh, groups in the area. It's easy to kind of find um, people of like mind if you're looking. Um, so I think we're pretty lucky or maybe maybe a bit luckier than other places in the country. How do you feel about California? I mean, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because it's like having been born and raised in California and then living in New England for four years-ish I was there, in my mind, it's so much more conservative in in New England, and it'd be so much more difficult to kind of be able to express that side of yourself and be visible, whereas here, it's just like people walking down the street, you know, it it's not a thing. I mean, I grew up going to little tiny co-op shops like we talked about on our gift episode I started going to follow your heart as a little kid 
and uh, where they had all like the vegan stuff and the hippy dippy everything and tarot cards and crystals and candles and all that crap next to your like wheat germ and loose herbs and you know all of that stuff so it's like I I feel like California is just like made for you know religious subculture to flourish by default it's so interesting because we are uh we're watching Downton Abbey right now because of course we've watched like basically everything on streaming um apps and are looking for things to watch I've seen it already and Lauren hadn't seen it. Are you it. watching the new episodes? We started from the beginning because Lauren had never seen it before. Oh, and so I'm just thinking about the difference between the Grant, you know, the Grantham family and then Lady Grantham's mom, who's from <laughs> America. And I'm that's how I am conceiving of being witchy in New England versus being witchy in California. So yeah. Like the mom, you know, the, the American mom rolls in and she's very modern. She's not taking anyone's shit. She just talks about everything out loud and proud. And then the English are sort of like, yeah, this is a thing. It happens here, but we just don't talk about it as much. Like, you know, you can find, you can find your people, like, sure. But we don't talk about it as openly. Yeah. I feel like that's very much almost everything California versus New England. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, these are things we don't need to talk about them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is a thing that I learned very rapidly uh, when I moved from California to Boston and being my like very tactile <laughs> kind of talking about everything California self and people looking at me like I was a fucking lunatic. That was an unlearned behavior. Yeah, it, it's very it's I don't know. It's just it's just funny, the differences. And yet, like. There is so much like I feel pride in New England's kind of witchy history like they've kind of owned the persecution aspect and just kind of turned that around into something positive in that they acknowledge what happened they acknowledge it was wrong and they were moving past it and refocusing it from being anti to being kind of pro because if you if any of you have been to Salem you know it's just like witch central and it's great and there's parts of it that are kitschy and weird but there are parts of it that are really authentic and it's I really like how they've owned the narrative and just decided to change it for the better. I guess the the one thing that kind of stands out to me is that you do it is really much really about finding your people Mm -hmm. finding your groups finding your places where you can talk about this stuff it's not super hard to, to do that but but there is this undertone from I think the the general majority that that would suggest its, its message is well yes witchcraft exists spiritual stuff exists but we don't think it's real mm-hmm. like that's that's sort of the narrative that's still happening here weirdly on the converse in california there's been this like uptick in women finding spirituality and it's become kind of like a joke like people, you know, will point a finger and be like, oh, she's one of those. She likes crystals and burns sage and all of that kind of stuff. So in California, almost depending on what circles you're in, you can be looked at as a trope. You can be looked at as a trend. Like, oh, it's very trendy to, you know, identify as a spiritual woman right now. And Mm -hmm. 
good and bad. Like I, there's part of me that's glad about that because it means that there are people that even if they started as a trend, they're finding themselves in a way that they didn't expect to. But also it trivializes it for a lot of people, which I don't love, but I mean, that's everything, right? I mean, anything that can possibly be latched onto can be made trivial. It is obviously not for anyone to judge anyone else's practice. So the only thing that makes me frustrated about it out here is that for a lot of people, it can be an eye roll thing where they'll see someone wearing crystals or something, or they'll see someone wearing a cute, kitschy, witchy t-shirt or dressing a certain way, or actually like using certain phrasing that's very familiar to our community. And, you know, people dismiss it as being, oh, that person's doing that right now, like everyone else, which makes me a little bit sad. I mean, ultimately, you don't live your truth for other people, so it doesn't really matter. But it's a little disappointing when you see people be super dismissive about it, arguing that it's, I don't know, like it's fake, that it's not real, that it's just, you know. Yeah, I think there's invalidation that's happening, you know, on both posts. And, and that is very much a, a carryover from he, our historical roots around this topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, think, I think the minute the word magic entered the conversation is when everything kind of went to hell, which is really interesting to me. So, gosh, I haven't even really gotten into the topic yet. It's really interesting to me that I feel like that's like where the pendulum swings, right? is when magic enters into it. What we consider to be magic or using the phrase magic because almost all religious ceremony, particularly Christian, let's be clear, uses magic. Like when you go to Catholic church and you take the sacrament and you drink blood and you eat flesh, Mm -hmm. basically magic. The priest is like, saying an incantation and you are like eating the flesh of your Lord and Savior. <laughs> like, I mean, it's Transmutation not, ritual. Okay. Yeah. It's not real far off, right? It's just, you know, magic by another name. Yeah. So it's, it's an intention setting ritual. So, yeah. So I don't know when, at what point the magic delineation came in to play, but that's a thing that I think about. Well, I know that, I mean, Eliza and I have talked with you guys before about our backgrounds and kind of coming at things from uh, Christian and like white European Mm -hmm. (laughs) point of view history, but the Catholic Church in particular has done a lot in terms of like commandeering different approaches and, and calling it different things as a strategic power grab. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. It's just, it's what you do. <laughs> it's like not even the church. Let's be clear. This is what people do. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, it is literally strategic power grabbing. You even do it now. Like when you start businesses and shit. Yeah. You know, you adapt to your audience. Mm-hmm. It's just humanity. It's human. Like how do we get these magic loving ritual people with an affinity for ritual? How do we get them under our wing? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we'll do that. Yeah. It's like having like the bake sale. 
everyone likes baked goods. <laughs> Maybe we can have them come over and uh, eat some baked goods and we can proselytize. <laughs> I don't know how my brain went there, but that's, I think I'm hungry. I think that's what, I think that's what you said. Well, I can tell you that um, baked goods are like a religious and church-like experience for me. So I totally get it. Okay, I'm actually going to get into some history now, guys. Sorry, I get philosophical and my brain needs sometimes. All right, so we're going to talk about where demonization of quote-unquote witchcraft really started. Because at the end of the day, think about it. It's all, everything that we do in our practices has always been there, right? Time immemorial. It's always been there. At what point did it become a bad thing? Because it's not like we're doing anything new. It's not like witchcraft was a new thing. Witchcraft was there before any kind of canonized religion was. It was just life. We called it life. We called it like just existence as opposed to defining it as something, as an addendum to existence like religion. So witchcraft really started to become questionable obviously in a big way around the time of Christianity, which surprises no one. However, we are starting to see the first, some of the first laws targeting witchcraft as something that can be punishable were found in, for example, uh, laws under the Romans. So this wasn't necessarily saying that witchcraft is bad, but it's saying that witchcraft is a thing that can be punished if done inappropriately. So like, there, there were laws in ancient Rome that if you used witchcraft to spoil a crop yield because you were angry with someone, you could be punished for that. That was kind of... Well, there go my plans for the weekend. Yep. <laughs> Better think before you spoil someone's yield. The government does not view that positively. So I find it really kind of funny that the Romans were like, so when we're making our laws, you know what's a thing that seems to be a pervasive issue? People using their witchcraft to spoil people. <laughs> so there's part of me that's like, were they really like, yes, I think there was part of them that was really afraid of that. And then I think there was part of them that was like practical and like, okay, we keep losing money on crops. How are we going to recoup, recoup this loss? Yeah. And, you know, make people not mad at landowners for you know, droughts of crops in the villages. Right? Well, and like, if you actually think that there is a problem with people ruining crops on purpose, like naturally you're like, well, maybe this will be a deterrative measure. Uh, we can put this in, we can enact these laws and hopefully people will be disincentivized to do these horrible practices of ruining crop yields. Uh, so, <laughs> like laws we have in place now, like, the death penalty, where it's like, oh, maybe someone will think twice about killing a person if they know the death yeah. penalty. So yes, so, but still, as you can see, witchcraft in and of itself was not considered the thing on trial. It was the use of witchcraft to do something bad to the greater good, which frankly makes a lot of sense in my brain. But so it was kind of during the early medieval period when Christianity was really kind of starting to formulate its dogma which is when witchcraft started to be affiliated with the devil. And so in early Christianity, there was a big, big push towards separating the human being from the devil and the devil as an entity, as an evil person-ish 
that could come and take your soul and ruin your life and ruin everyone else's life was like a big fear. So fear of the devil is really kind of what spurred a lot of these views toward fear of the devil is the basis for a lot of anti-witch, anti-witchcraft religious law. So being as though they started doing this in the evil medi- the early medieval period, there was still a, quite a few people that were like, okay, this is a really slippery slope. I don't know that it makes sense to actually be able to willy-nilly just accru- accuse people of working with the devil, accuse people of witchcraft. Like it didn't just go zero to a hundred. It wasn't just like the devil, witchcraft, all of a sudden everything is evil versus good. Uh, It's not just the constant inquisition and persecution that we think about when we think of witch trials and things. Uh, There were actually laws under some early Christian kingdoms and early Christian rulers purposely preventing baseless accusations, accusing folks of witchcraft. So they saw that this could potentially get out of control. And there were laws on the book saying that you can't just kill someone because they were accused of being a witch because they were accused of witchcraft. It's like they had foresight and they were like, this could get really, really bad. Mm -hmm. So there are... They were like, "Mm, I don't have 24 hours a day to be... 24 hours a day to arbitrate complaints about people being mad at each other and claiming that the devil, you know, was involved. That being said, it still happened. Mm -hmm. Womp, womp. So rulers like Charlemagne the Great uh, regularly targeted people that were considered to be witches or devil worshippers. You know, this is this is this is where it begins. This is where any kind of threat to control over mind or country—well, not really country, empires, etc.—started to see a rise in accusing people of witchcraft. So when you saw that, oh. This is a really convenient way of getting rid of enemies and folks that are potential rivals. That's where it started. And they use passages in the Bible to justify this behavior. So the most oft-referenced one is Exodus 22.18, which says, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And so that in particular was used as justification a lot. There are other passages in the Bible that refer to witchcraft. Mostly they're just cautionary, like suggesting that there is danger affiliated with uh, practices like divination and necromancy, which I feel like is obvious (laughs) with necromancy. Uh, Not a great idea to try and raise people from the dead. Nothing good ever comes from it. Look at vampires. There's also, I feel like, in our episode about, you know, readings and how to identify a reader who's maybe not so great. This brings to mind to me like the the danger of somebody not being able to explain to another person like how free will like plays into life and the and the playing out of our various potential timelines. Because you can really mess people up by you know misinforming them about uh, how how divination can actually be applied. Right, and that's I I mean it is very practical advice. I do often also question the, the actual wording that's in religious text uh, mm-hmm. because there were many councils 
that took place while Christianity was being formalized that made decisions as to what will and will not be included in Holy Scripture. So I kind of don't trust like anything. (laughs) Like I don't trust anything, which is too bad because you never know what was just kind of like a pesky little like, just had this phrasing in here also translation over time has just really screwed things up like the 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 fact that the word homosexuality wasn't even in the bible until the 40s let's be clear Mm -hmm. like shit changes over time we're human beings like even if the bible was divinely inspired which personally i do believe it was i believe sincerely that jesus the person was person and had a message from spirit to pass along that was really, really powerful and inspired a lot of good in a lot of people. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings and we're all fallible and we are all subject to our own interpretations of things. And so you've got to take it with a grain of salt. Everything written in scripture was written by human beings. So who knows exactly how much of whatever talk on witchcraft there is in the bible was divinely inspired or personally inspired we will never know either way it was used a lot to justify anti-witch persecution etc so when did the actual anti-witch hysteria start like when did we go from like daily life who gives a shit hopefully we'll we'll convert everybody that are pagans to our lifestyle from like courting to actual persecution. Like there was a change. At the beginning, they all realized that like, clearly you can't just kill them all. <laughs> so there was this, this push towards proselytization. There was this, this push toward, you know, conversion. And then at one point it just became killing. So when did that happen? So really anti-witch hysteria really began around the 15th century. Within a century's time, there was this insane ramp up where they became so common that several hundred thousand people were accused of witchcraft. Not that many were killed, thankfully, but the accusations just took off. The ones that got, a, that got convicted ended up being burned at the stake, hanged. The majority were single women, sometimes widows, mostly women, and for whatever reason, they'd be marginalized members of society. Also, other marginalized members of society, like the mentally disabled, physically disabled, or people you just don't like. Oh my gosh, this is reminding me of the readings party that we did in the Cauldron Cooler, and we read that article about Mm -hmm. different ways to tell if somebody was a witch, and one of the targeted groups were elderly folks, Uh right? Elderly women, and it was like, okay, grandma's been living with us for a while now. (laughs) We don't have a lot of money to feed her anymore. And she's really crotchety and no one likes her. And she's really crotchety. Nobody nobody likes her. What are we going to do about that? Ah, witchcraft persecution. That sounds like the answer. Yep. You know, the the witch accusation solves a lot of problems. It's a very blanket kind of problem-solving tool that... (laughs) that could be used over time to just get rid of all those problem pesky people usually women 
as women are problematic and pesky. Let's be clear. So between the years 1500 and 1660, up to 80,000 suspected witches were put to death in Europe, just Europe. 80,000, 80% of them being women that were accused of being in cahoots with the devil and filled with lust. Those lusty women and their devil worshiping. How dare they? At the stake. Can we just talk about how fucking icky that is, by the way? That like these public executions would be like days out for families. Like what the fuck is wrong with the human race? I'm sorry. Like maybe yeah. it's just gotten really soft in the modern era, but what in the fuck is wrong with you? If you want to get rid of them, just fucking get rid of them. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you have to make a public show of it? That's the Puritan in me. <laughs> <laughs> How else can you deter it? How else do you strike fear in the hearts of everyone if you don't put it on display? So fun facts about witch persecution in Europe. Things I did not know. The highest rate of witch executions happened in Germany. Huh. Fun fact, the lowest, you'll be happy to hear this, Ireland. Oh, my people. Your people. Well, I think because uh, the, the paganism is still very strong, I feel, yeah. which is really interesting because the Irish are very Catholic. The Irish are also still very pagan, whether they want to admit it or not. And I love them for it. Me too. There's so much cool lore there. You can't get rid of the Fae. You can't. They will not let you forget. Can't get rid of the Fae. So the main text that was the the reference that people used uh, during this time was something called the Malleus Maleficarum. I don't know if you've heard of that. So it immediately brings my mind to Salem. Mm -hmm. Remember they had a the, the malice was like a specific object that they were on the hunt for for a few seasons. Oh, I never watched it. Oh my god, you have to. I know. I know. There's a lot that I have to watch. I've watched Charmed either, and everyone says that that's amazing. <laughs> I might I deviate from that opinion, but uh, the Salem is really good. Well, the Malleus Malficarum was a book written by two German Dominican friars usually translated as the hammer of witches. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, that sounds pretty cool to me. <laughs> I know, it sounds badass, which is probably why it was so popular. We were like, oh, this sounds fucking awesome. Uh, it was essentially a guide on how to identify, hunt, and interrogate witches. Oh, okay, I take it back. That's yeah. not so cool. I know, but it sounds cool. It does. Yeah, it sounds cool. So for more than 100 years, this book sold more copies of any other book in Europe, except the Bible. Yeah. So it's one of those chicken or the egg things. Like, is it the book that inspired lots of witch hunts? Or were the witch hunts there and then the book just propelled them forward? And maybe some boredom. Like, I'm thinking of today, like, people, like, ghost hunting as a hobby. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not that uh, witch hunting should be trivialized in the same way, but... There are probably a lot of bored people that were like, let me get the hammer of witches and uh, yeah. do some witch hunting in my town. Some witch hunting. Crops suck this year. We got to do something. It definitely can't be because I'm a bad farmer. Definitely not because I'm a bad farmer. Has to be the witches. Has to be those lusty devil affiliating women. Anyway, so one of the first documented witch trials was in Switzerland in 1428. So the evidence 
uh, and methods used to extract confessions for this trial led to another very popular book, the 1475 Formicarius, which postulates that witches are primarily women because of what the author describes as their physical, mental, and moral inferiority. Oh boy. Oh boy. So naturally, witches are mostly women. Mm. So you got those two Dominican friars that just took this info and ran with it. Mm -hmm. A papal bull in 1484 explicitly empowered the prosecution of witches and the leaders of the Reformation zealously embraced this effort. John Calvin, Martin Luther, they fucking loved some witch trials. Which I feel like I should have known. Like I knew about John Calvin, so I went, context. I grew up going to Lutheran schools until I went to Catholic high school. And so like I was baptized Lutheran and confirmed Lutheran. And so I did lots of Lutheraning. <laughs> I didn't realize that the kind- I like that as a verb, sorry. <laughs> the flavor of Lutheranism that uh, I grew up in was like a really conservative one. Apparently Lutherans now are like actually kind of cool and hippy dippy and a little like chill. Like they have like female pastors and stuff. And I'm just like, fucking, why wasn't that my church? Anyway, stupid. Um, apparently Martin Luther in Germany fucking loved some witch hunting. And I didn't realize this. I mean, it should have been obvious, but like this was like a huge <laughs> like epiphany for me. I don't know why when I was doing my research, I was like, oh my God, how did this happen? Well, obviously, stupid brain. Anyway, so Martin Luther and John Calvin across Europe, big advocates of witch trials. Um, they ended up spreading as far as like Norway, Poland, Italy, all over the place. So not only did you have witch persecution in the Catholic church, you had the reformation going on, which is such a huge, huge deal where you're empowering people to worship in their own way, but also deciding to tell people to prosecute and persecute, rather persecute, persecute then prosecute, which is like en masse. Uh -huh. So they're like, you can uh, worship in your own way if it's, you know, based in Christianity, but yeah. otherwise. Right. I mean, there is no other way. Let's be clear. There is no other way to live. That makes any kinds of sense. So between both the Catholics and the Protestants, women were screwed in Europe. So as mentioned before, most targets in Europe uh, of witch trials were vulnerable people. Usually they were poor. There were social outcasts, mental issues, etc. Most of the time women. Um, it was just a really convenient way to get rid of some people you didn't like. Okay. It's just so fucked. We even have in England in 1562, uh, early in her reign, Queen Elizabeth I passed into law the Act Against Conjurations, Enchantments, and Witchcrafts. Which is so interesting to me because in a lot of ways, royalty has, at least maybe way back in the past, I don't know about in Elizabethan England, relied on different forms of spiritual guidance, some divination in there. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah, telling. future telling. Mm -hmm. How is this battle going to turn out for us? So I think um, in this case, uh, if I'm doing some contextual analysis, when Elizabeth was a young queen, uh, she was the first, aside from her father, to be a Protestant ruler. 
so not only was she a woman, she was young, she was unmarried, and she was subject to the advice of a lot of very strictly Protestant men. And I feel like it made a lot of sense for her in order to show that she was a strong ruler, that she was a strong Protestant ruler, because her sister had been a Catholic who was a queen right before her. So this weird thing where her dad was king, and then her sister, a Catholic, was queen, and then Elizabeth was queen, and she was a Protestant again. So she and her sister was a very scary Catholic queen. She killed lots of people. They called her Bloody Mary for a reason. And so as a young, unmarried Protestant woman, she had to show strength. And I think that when her advisor said, you should pass this law, I think she said, great idea. Let's pass this law and verify that I am a strong Christian Protestant ruler and I will not tolerate nonsense. And to the Protestants, a lot of the Catholic practices were considered borderline witchcraft because of like Saint veneration and all that kind of stuff. So I think that it, it made a lot of sense in terms of establishing herself as a ruler, which is sad, but true. Well, I was just thinking too, like she herself falls into a couple of the categories mm-hmm. for the women who were persecuted as witches. A little bit. So, you know, she, she kind of had to do what she had to do. Not that I'm justifying it, but I, I see where it came from. Yeah. Uh, it was not easy being her. So she did what she needed to in order to cement her reign. So we have got tons of different witch trials that have happened over time. A couple of the most famous ones are the Pendle Witches of 1612, uh, where we get Alice Nutter, which is one of my favorite favorite witches of history, mainly because her name is Alice Nutter. And also, if anyone's either read or watched Good Omens, she plays a pivotal role in that story, and it's an amazing story. If you haven't read it or watched it, I recommend reading it and or watching it. Um, It's excellent. Grace, have you read or watched Good Omens? I watched it. Okay, good. Yeah. Good, good, good. The book is incredible. So so the Pendle Witch Trial, and of course we have the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. We could go into detail of these trials, the accusations, the people that died. They could be their own episode, so I'm not going to go into detail. Uh, something that I think is really important that I wanted to make sure that we mentioned before the end of this episode, there are still witch trials happening in the world. To an extent that is frightening and went far beyond what I even conceived of being still a thing. Particularly places like like Sub-Saharan Africa in particular has the highest rate of current witch persecution in the world. This still- Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, like I knew, but I didn't know. You know what I mean? So there are still women being persecuted, tortured, put to death in Sub-Saharan Africa, India, Papua New Guinea, Saudi Arabia, even some places in South America, it is still a real thing. In Sub-Saharan Africa, I remember seeing that a lot of children were being accused of being witches and being, yeah, and being put to death for being witches because they were had out of wedlock, lots of different reasons. 
this is the thing that we should really pay attention to as modern day witches. We're really, really lucky that we can walk around the streets in our, you know, witchy garb wearing our crystals and we can have our cute podcast and we can post cute memes and really worship freely in the way that we want to and have conversations over Zoom about what our practice looks like and, you know, watch awesome stuff on TV and try it. And we're really, really fortunate uh, that that's the life that we lead right now because there are plenty of women out there that most likely don't even practice witchcraft Mm -hmm. that are being persecuted for it. It is a very real thing. And unfortunately, it is on the rise. And Human Rights Watch has even done research and done a lot of programs focusing on this. It is terrifying. So I am putting a call out there to all of our witchy listeners in our community to keep these folks in our thoughts and our prayers and to put out into the world that we hope that greater understanding comes and that these folks that are still being persecuted can get some mercy because, you know, it just breaks my heart. Yeah, I definitely have to educate myself more on this, I know. Yeah, I do too. I mean, there there are things that I feel like I know and I just really don't. So that's the thing that I'm going to end this with. Really happy note, call out to all of our mystically minded witchy and woo to keep our brothers and sisters and both in your thoughts and pray and do whatever you need to do to increase love and understanding in the world because that's the best we can do. So on that very happy note, do you have any comments? Well, I would love, you know, for our listening community to gather around this maybe a little bit more in our Facebook group. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, maybe we can plan some kind of intentional energy direction. I really like that idea. And I, I feel called to return back to this topic because we... In this community, we talk so much about historical persecution, and it's such a part of our identity. And we've done a really great job of kind of like owning it and uh, turning it into something positive that we need to remember that there are still plenty of men, women, and both, and neither (laughs) Mm -hmm. that still suffer. And if nothing else, we can become more mindful, we become more aware and we can direct our practices toward the greater good in a way that perhaps we didn't know we needed to do. Yeah, and I think ending in this uh, way is a great call to action for more learning for myself, but for for our community. You know, it's sort of like um, absence uh, allows us to um, make things invisible, and I don't want to do that. Yeah, and that's the case with lots of things. You know, we're, we're lucky enough to not have to know about the bad shit, but we should. Yeah. Yep. So. Yep. We don't know. We can't make progress. I'm going to close this episode with that. Uh, thank you for the call to action, Grace. And I think that we all have a lot to think about. And I encourage this conversation to continue whether it's on social media, whether you want to slide into our DMs, uh, whether you just want to do it with your own community, uh, with your friends, with your family, let's try and um, let's try and be better. I agree. 
And with that, All right. I'm ready to sign off. See you next time, guys. Thanks for avoiding muggle life with us at the Cauldron Cooler. If you like our magical banter, please leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever newfangled podcast platform the kids use these days. And tell your friends to give us a listen, real or imaginary. If you have any feedback, questions, or just want to say hi, you can email us at aroundthecauldronpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at around underscore the underscore cauldron and like our page on Facebook. I'm sure we'll do more social media things once we get the hang of all this nonsense.